Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Ra, and you are the gods of tomorrow. All right, all right, all right. Let's uh, let's do this shit. And we are back like herpes. It's the gift that doesn't go away. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 13. We have finally made it to 13. I didn't even think we were going to make it to fucking two, and here we are at 13. And uh, I'm excited to have you guys here. This is Gods of Tomorrow. I'm Josh Draw. You can call me Josh. And we have another guest with us again today, Dr. Jane Timewaster. You may know her as Timewaster 2.0 on TikTok. I'm excited to have her here. We had also connected with many of my other guests at the Atheist Convention down in Atlanta, where we just barely skinned by um, and somehow survived that entire experience. It was wild. <laughs> How are you doing, Jane? It is exciting to see you. Yeah, I'm doing great. This is, I'm. it's really good to see you again. <laughs> it is. I feel like it's been so long. We had like a really nice breakfast with a bunch of people that was overpriced. Uh, and got to share a little <laughs> bit of our, got to share a little bit of our stories during that, but didn't really get down to the nitty gritty. So yeah. I'm, I'm excited to bring you on and kind of dive into what your story is and how you got where you are today. Yeah, I'm. I've never really told my story before, and uh, really, all, a lot of it really just launched because of TikTok and the pandemic, right? So I did the same thing we all did. We all got bored and downloaded TikTok one day and just kind of got a little sucked in. And uh, um, I've met a lot of people and I always avoided ex-Jehovah's Witness blogs and conversations. And just, I never really considered myself a Jehovah's Witness once I had been disfellowshipped from it. But I most certainly didn't want to associate <laughs> with apostates. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm actually being, it's been kind of exciting for me to be grouped into with apostates. Like, I feel like I've almost been given a badge of honor. I didn't yeah. really, because I didn't really consider that being a thing for me to dive into. And I stepped out of my own, like, walk with Jesus, like, 15 years ago. I was like, well, that's that. I'm done with the Bible. And I put it in the closet and never looked at it again. And then somebody reached out and they said, hey, Josh, can you just talk about what your, like, deconstruction looked like? Can you talk about your journey? Yeah, I'll post a video, and like within a week, I have people commenting, calling me dirty names, insulting me, using apostate as like some sort of insult. I'm like, I think I just like won the internet. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't like confrontation, so that's the other piece of it too. You know, I I didn't um, actually ever have a public social media um, ever. Um, until TikTok. And I think I had just kind of reached a point in my life where I realized I want to be myself and I don't feel like I can be myself. Um, sometimes you just run in a lot of certain circles that you have to maintain a certain amount of, I don't know, modesty, mm -hmm. <laughs> a certain amount of professionalism that is always just assumed that you're going to be your whole life. And while I, I do feel that I am very professional in my line of work, I um, enjoy being goofy and silly in my life, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So I kind of started my TikTok and just kind of wanted to be myself. So if you do peruse through my TikToks, you will see a lot of randomness of just me sort of just figuring out life and expressing myself and expressing my feelings about the things that are coming across our pages and things that are happening in the world that are upsetting or hilarious or whatever. Um, and that's really just me experiencing it. And the, the religious deconstruction kind of happened by accident. <laughs> I had no intention of doing that. Um, uh, it, it really was just more of like, 
uh, happenstance. Uh, I guess it's something that I didn't know that I needed to do until I started doing it. And then I started feeling better and better. And a lot of things are changing in my life now. I mean, granted, the pandemic, I feel like, has changed all of us in, in a, <sighs> unmeasurable ways. But um, I have I have been surprisingly happy about even though digging up all this stuff sometimes can be really painful, I, I feel like it has been very therapeutic in many ways as well. And I'm also finding that I may not be the only one. What? Did, did you start? <laughs> Other people feel the same way? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Did you start deconstructing before the pandemic or was that kind of like you, the pandemic started and it started causing you to question a lot of things about your own faith? Um. I, so my answer to that normally would be no, I didn't. Um, I was, I am third or fourth generation Jehovah's Witness, born and raised on both sides of my family. So there was really no escaping it. Uh, I had no choice in the matter. I was raised in that. It was all I ever knew. And I didn't think it was the worst possible way to be raised. So I had no reason to like, just be horrified and run away from it. I didn't have maybe quite the awful experiences that other people have had. Um, so it wasn't a cause for me to like run away. Mm -hmm. um, should have been. <laughs> um, but you know, when you're, you're just a kid, it's all you've ever known and you're trying to please your parents and everyone in your family and you have a huge extended family and everybody's either a, a, a diehard or um, been kicked out and you don't know who they are. I, I have lots of family members. I I didn't even know who they were because I wasn't allowed to talk to them because they were kicked out of the religion. So um, that is so that's a lot to. <laughs> I, I was, well, and I, I've shared this before in previous podcasts, but I, I don't have a whole lot of interaction with Jehovah Witnesses like my it, which I think is probably true for many individuals in Western culture. There's a lot of evangelicals. There's a lot of the charismatic stuff. There's just kind of like the um, lukewarm churches where you kind of go each Sunday and kind of get your your Jesus in, and then you go on about your regular life. Um, but like my only interaction with Jehovah Witnesses was them coming to my door, knocking on the door. And at that time, I was really fanatical as a Christian. And so I would always answer the door with my Bible, invite them in, and I would like sit them down for a Bible study and I'd make them coffee and some like coffee cake. And we'd sit down and like just debate over scriptures for two hours. And then I'd let them out the door and I'd invite them back next week for another session. And they would never come back again, but I had a lot of fun doing it. Like I thought I was being really like both funny, but also doing the work of God in that process. And so I don't really, if you could just walk us through, what is it like to be a child in a Jehovah Witness church? Like, what does that day-to-day -day look like for you? Or even week-to-week, -week, depending on how often you are attending. Yeah, um, things are different now. Um, and that's, I think that's a big part of why I'm being more outspoken now of my experiences, because... Um, I will date myself here. Um, I My experiences of being in that organization are between the 1980s and early 2000s. Um, and that's it. Um, when I left, I didn't, I really didn't look back. I mean, obviously, I still have family in. And so you hear little bits of things. And, you know, my mom was always trying to like, leave me a watchtower and awake and sneak it into my house or something, you know, um, but I didn't I had no interest. I, I just wanted to. I just wanted to turn the turn it off and turn something more interesting on. Um, so, like growing up, I was really only exposed to that kind of time era, and it's a little different now. But yeah. when I was a child, oh, good lord, um, it was Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays um, that you would hour, two hours at a time. Um, so I had to learn to sit still for long periods of time as a child. Um, <laughs> um, I, I learned to take notes and just scribble and I learned really well to pretend like I understood what was going on. Um, and everybody was really nice to me. So that, that was pretty much my experience. Um, but I didn't learn anything. And I think um, growing up as a child, I started to get more and more curious about things and I really wanted to learn how the world worked. And I started realizing that a lot of people pretended that they knew how things work, but they couldn't really answer any of my questions to any level of satisfaction. So 
I started questioning whether or not people really knew what they were talking about. And um, that's a first start, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then you don't really have the skill set to know how to compare it to other things and, and how to really scrutinize what you're learning. And um, while they pride themselves very much on being like a very educational kind of religion and didactic, if you will, um, they really kind of lack a lot of actual substance um, and references and resources and things to compare to. And while they say they recommend everybody do their own research, they also at the same time very much do not recommend and are very strongly opposed to you doing that research mm. uh, outside of the organization. So if I wanted to learn what a Muslim was like, I really only learned about that through the Jehovah's Witness lens. So um, later on, of course, as they got out, that's part of the reason why I just I threw away the key and just walked away because I was like, you guys don't, you just don't know anything. Like, I'm going to go learn this from the people who are actually doing this. Um, and so I just didn't value the information anymore. But growing up, you know, you, you don't really have the words to, to put that in together. So um, I think it was just mostly me struggling with trying to disseminate what is fantasy and what is real. Mm. And while I knew very early on that Santa Claus wasn't real and bit my tongue in school and didn't ruin it for all the other kids because I was nice, (laughs) um, it took me a while to truly just sort of even TV and things that, you know, like television shows and movies to try and realize, well, that's not real. Um, because I couldn't see any difference between those stories and the stories in the Bible. Santa Claus seemed really fake to me. No problem there. <laughs> but having everyone tell you that this other thing that also sounds kind of fairy ish is real and you just have to believe it really kind of messes with you. So I think a lot of me was just trying to figure that out and cope with that and try and understand the world around me. And it wasn't until... I mean, you guys are going to laugh at me. It wasn't until like Jurassic Park came out that I realized there was a lot of questions that I never even thought to ask. And it just excited me so much that I just started asking question after question after question. And I wanted to watch every science movie there was that my parents would let me watch. Um, I didn't have regular cable or anything so we just had like pps Mm -hmm. and so i just watched every nature show i could i loved it and so i think just my absolute desire and curiosity to understand the world around me was very beneficial to me kind of never really getting super duper sucked in to to the the cult uh really and so me just kind of going through Thankfully, my parents let me go to public school. That's not the case for a lot of kids. Um, A lot of them were homeschooled and learned nothing. Um, So I got a little exposure. I got kind of a safe place to ask my questions and get answers that made a lot more sense to me. Um, uh, Because when you ask questions at the Kingdom Hall, which is what we call our church, (laughs) we have special names for everything. you don't, this isn't like a, like a classroom setting where they go up and they give their talk and they talk about the topics. There's pre-planned questions that they ask, and that is it. You answer those questions based on what is in the article. Nobody raises their hand and says, I have a question. Like that does, doesn't happen. You take your questions to your family. You take it to your, you know, your father or your parents or your elder or whatever and they'll quietly tell you but you didn't ask questions and um, I think that was one of the turning points for me when I after I got kicked out and I went to college because I decided I wanted to do that and I noticed they encouraged us to ask questions (laughs) and so one day I just I got brave and you know how nobody wants to raise their hand and ask questions in front of everybody and I just I decided I was going to be brave and bold and do it And not only did the teacher answer my question, I finally understood the topic better, but two other people beside me turned to me and said, I'm so glad you asked that question. I was wondering the same thing. And it just occurred to me, I've never been allowed or encouraged to ask questions. And a lot of people also have similar questions I do. So I'm just going to start asking. And so 
there it is. That that's it. That's that launched my whole life. It changed everything, and I've just been asking questions ever since. <laughs> that's really interesting, and, and it makes you wonder how many individuals sit there through a church or through a sermon or through that entire process with questions that they never get to ask, and their mind essentially shifts into a place that it's not for me to know or it must not be important and that's why we're not addressing it i know that even in some of the mainstream churches we see people referring back to like deuteronomy 29 29 you know not all things are meant to be known you know the lord works in mysterious ways you can't understand the ways of god and was this something that you also heard given to you within the church oh sure yep okay. yep as soon as i get to but how and well god works in mysterious ways you know and and you know it's like that is also what science does <laughs> you know um you could just you could easily explain that with science so i don't have to understand how it works to know that it's working and that there probably is a scientific explanation for how it works we just don't maybe have the tools to see it or detect it or understand it um but you know in 100 years every kid is going to be in elementary school learning this thing that we think is so mysterious that we mm -hmm. have decided that a god did it um and i don't know maybe it's we all have this drive to have answers for things that we question um and one of the things i think i liked a lot about the scientific method is it's okay that you don't have the answers to it and um but still asking the question is okay um and that's that's huge. <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that. I had somebody on my TikTok video the other day talk to me about, you know, if science was my truth and if I lived my life by science. And I was like, you know, science doesn't really deal in truth. It doesn't deal in absolutes. It narrows down the scope of what could be a possibility. But truth is something that functions in the realm of logic. Like in logic, you find truths through algorithms, through science, you just find out what is really possible and what's not possible through your whole entire hypotheses and trying to discover whether or not those hold some element of reality within them, more or less. And, yeah. and, and it was actually kind of hard, I feel like, for that individual to grasp what I was saying. It's like people who follow science recognize that there's still possibility. We've just narrowed the scope of what that possibility is. Yeah, and, and we test it and try it multiple ways. So I work in a field that very much relies on hard science to guide what we do. But none of us are naive enough to think that just because they wrote an article, they did a clinical trial, it showed that there was a benefit, that it means that it applies to everybody mm -hmm. or that everyone's gonna react the same way or, you know, that's how we find out if people falsified their data or they did it under really bad controlled settings that just don't play out in the real world. And so literally everything that comes out, we might get super excited that it's showing promise, but then it, it might still fail. It might still show that it's not really working. And I think with the pandemic, I was kind of hoping, and I think maybe I'm vindicated that a lot of people did learn. I think there's a lot of curious people out there that did learn from the pandemic. But going into the pandemic, I think I'm a little disappointed at how many people are just like, well, what is it? Do we wear masks or do we not wear masks? Ugh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, well, things change, right? And they're changing really fast. And so we all have to be on top of it. We have to be dynamic. We have to understand that our environment is changing very quickly in this particular instance and that we have to adapt and sometimes the regulations are a guideline based across the board that someone hastily came up with that really only applied to a certain group of people or a certain mm -hmm. kind of situation so we have to be dynamic and so i i just don't i don't understand why people threw out the baby with the bathwater. water <laughs> it's like well yeah. you're not right in this instance then you must be wrong in every instance ever and it you know it's just a matter of maybe you just didn't understand and if i may maybe. add to that it's still fucking yeah. changing COVID still hasn't gone <laughs> no, away right? <laughs> because you motherfuckers wouldn't put on a fucking mask and help break it down so now we have all these additional alterations of the virus and people who are so frustrated that this vaccine was created so fast like oh how did you create this so fast it's a conspiracy listen 
you dumbasses. We have been working on COVID vaccines for decades. This isn't the yes. first strand of COVID we've been dealing with. It's not like we just pulled something out of our ass and started injecting it into people. There's been research and method. Uh, my brother actually worked in labs that worked on the COVID vaccine. In oh, really? Yeah. So I, I, I know a lot of this from him, but we've been studying it for decades. This isn't something yes. that's been new to humanity encountering this. It was just a new strand of a virus that was very, right. was very rapidly contagious and the first coronavirus to cause a problem either yeah. you know it yeah um huh. everyone take a deep breath if you're listening <laughs> I, i'm gonna calm down a little bit <laughs> and i'll back up the track a little bit too you you said a couple of things that i kind of wanted hopefully one for you to provide definition and one for you to expand on in your story a little bit for definition and correct me if i'm wrong i heard you say the the term watchtower oh Mm -hmm. What is Watchtower for those that are not aware? Yeah, so, and I'm not the best person to ask about the history of the Jehovah's Witness organization and how it's evolved over the years, but um, I think they used to go by the term Bible students, and then they have essentially, <laughs> essentially, they are a corporate religion that's very structured like an MLM or pyramid scheme, but but they've they've changed their corporate name several times it was the bible and track society for a really long time and they are the ones that produced all of the well the watchtower and bible track society i believe is what it was called um but they basically came up with this magazine that's called the watchtower and that's where they started kind of really getting that um, field service that door-to-door -door ministry going and that's mm. really what drove a lot of what they would talk to people at the door but it was also what they would study at the at one of the meetings so there were like three meetings a week we studied a book on one of them it was the book study <laughs> um and then they had the theocratic ministry school which was really just teaching people how to use techniques to do the ministry and then they had the sunday meeting which was let's learn about some part random part of the bible and all this stuff was driven by the head of the corporation uh, organization um and i believe they were the governing body back then they're still the governing body now they were not people i knew who they were i didn't know their faces or any of their names i could have cared less i guess but um now they're like celebrities and they're all in videos and they're all doing like video um meetings and stuff like that so it's all a little different for me now, but um, essentially they are the ones that came up with the material that we all read everywhere worldwide at all the kingdom halls. So that, that, um, that's fascinating. And again, because I'm not really embedded within this, this sector, within this cult, I was just wasn't familiar with that. Another thing that you had talked about was, um, you know, being kicked out. I don't think excommunicated is necessarily the right language, but what does that process look like? Was it, a formal process or was it just i just didn't go back anymore and so now i'm not allowed to be there it it's a little bit of both depending on the situation but it is exactly like excommunication if i understand what that is um if you get disfellowshipped you go through a committee of elders that review your transgressions and decide or i guess they pray to jehovah to decide if you are repentant enough or if the sin that you committed was just so egregious, AKA everyone in the kingdom hall knows about it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> then they have to make an example of you and they will dis disfellowship you. And then what that means is you're not allowed to talk to anybody. Um, only elders of the congregation can talk to you uh, and you are expected to show up to the meetings, all of them on time, quietly, sit in the back, do your, do your you know, do your jail time or whatever your time out and then you know once they feel you've been repentant enough and you clearly are showing that you want to be there then they'll reinstate you and then your friends and your family can talk to you but so, until then they all have to basically pretend like you don't exist not they're not supposed to look at you they're not supposed to smile at you they're not it's the weirdest thing. they just pretend you're not there and this is within the church setting or even outside of it everything all of it if they run into you anywhere I mean, you're allowed to have business relations with people. So like if you have a job and your boss happens to be one of the elders, either you find a new job or they work something out where you do business. But uh, 
I mean, granted, if they're an elder, they can still talk to you. But anyway, it, it, it's very convoluted down the line. And, and there are people who sort of self-disassociate themselves if you just kind of like sneak out and they don't have a chance to talk to you and make a formal committee and formalize it. I don't know that they're supposed to be or they used to not be able to disfellowship you if they didn't have that formal review process and then you would just be like disassociated. But people can still treat you the same way. It just depends, right? Like some people are like, well, the rule says that I can't talk to you. And then other people are like, well, you're not disfellowship, so technically I can talk to you. And it's, I think it's just all nonsense. Can, I, I, can you talk to us about how this has affected your own relationship with your family or other friends that are in there? Are you... Do they, I don't know if you can talk, can, do they break the rules and still text you and call you and have family get togethers? Or is that a really uh, estranged relationship where it's just like, you know, it's very minimal or we just, sorry, Jane, you're on your own. Good luck in life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it very much can like be like that for people. Um, it, everybody's situation is just a little bit different. I was lucky enough to be old enough. I think I was like 22 and I had a job that I was able to get my own apartment and be on my own. And so a lot of people aren't as lucky. And then they're living with their parents or someone else that is still a witness. And then they have to go to, to meetings in order to live. And even if they don't want to be there, they're going to have to in order to, you know, get their basic needs met. So um, it definitely can be like that for some people. For me, um, it was just as tragic, but it wasn't financially tragic. Um, my dad immediately got diagnosed with cancer about two months six months after i got this fellowship i was lucky i guess that he even told me about it um <laughs> but i wasn't allowed to talk to him it was it was very well known that that yeah he's he's your dad's dying of cancer and he won't talk to you um all because you didn't you know want to come back to the to religion and stuff so um, that wait, was really wait, frustrating. Wait. Your sin caused his cancer? No, no, no. My sin caused him to be forced to not talk to me while he was dying of oh, cancer. Okay. He okay. didn't blame me for the cancer, but he certainly blamed me for not being able to talk to me. Um, he did die in the hospital that I worked in, which was really upsetting to have to be like working and like see a label with your dad's name on it. That was pretty messed up. But yeah, I mean, it definitely affects you. Um, I have almost no contact with anyone in my family that I used to be best friends with, cousins, um, siblings. I, I, there's a lot of them I have no contact with. Um, pretty much just any of them that have left and reached out. I'm connecting, so I still have some cousins and some aunts, um, people, people coming out of the woodwork and you know, if they leave or then they'll go back in or, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. It's kind of like the family drama of who's in and who's out. And <laughs> I'm just really trying to like process, I guess, just how this reflects the teachings of Jesus that they claim that are within the New Testament and how, and how this is like, you know, eat with the sinners or show yeah. help those who are in need or, you know, fellowship or, you know, it doesn't count because we knew better. We were supposed to know better. Um, we're the worst, right? So like they can forgive people who didn't know um, because eventually they'll know and then they'll have the chance. I knew, I knew what I was doing and I knew I should have known better. By the way, I got baptized in this religion when I was 14. I knew shit. I didn't know shit. <laughs> I knew to tell them exactly what they wanted to hear to make them happy. And so I did that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's a lot of victim blaming. It's a lot of putting it back on that person. And, it, and the transgressions that you did might not be really anything. Like, you're thinking like, oh, you, you cheated on your wife and your children are miserable and you abandoned your family and you got disfellowshipped. No, no. Half the time, those people didn't get disfellowshipped. So, you know, it was it was like, oh, you might be gay or um, you made out with a boy or, you know, I, you know, anything that they find is a transgression that you just don't seem sorry enough for. And so, Really, if you're on their bad side or, you know, the, you know, the dynamics of a congregation could probably be pretty underhanded and backstabby after a while. These people all know each other for years and years and years. And 
Um, in fact, um, your uh, podcast with Ryan, she mentioned love bombing and they made a, a comment in there about it. And really, I think that some of the love bombing that they do is just a natural product of their environment because when they're so controlled like that and they're not allowed to talk to family, they're not allowed to talk to people who aren't witnesses, you're really not encouraged to make friendships with people at work or school. They don't encourage you to go to college because it exposes you to too many things and people and ideas. And so when you're so isolated like that and somebody from the outside world comes in, it's probably just natural to just want to love bomb the hell out of them and get to know this person. Um, it, and I don't, I don't know that it's like a conspiracy. I think it's just, that's just what happens when you've isolated people like that. So yeah, it's almost like a natural psychological phenomenon that's happening within that environment that's being created and people don't recognize that they're having a reaction to a stimulus that's essentially right. being offered up to them. Kind of like people who get into talking in tongues, you know, like it's mm -hmm. you just get so worked up. You're so worked up about it that you just get so into it. I felt like that with music more than I've ever felt that way with God, but <laughs> I guess people will choose to direct it to whatever they feel is important in their life. I just think it's a cool phenomenon when you get the little the little tingles on your hair, uh, hairs on your arms, and they all stand up, and uh, it's fun. <laughs> so how many years now have you been out of the Jehovah Witness sect? Probably close close to like 15 or 18 maybe in there okay it's been so, a while so quite some time so where is yeah. your journey taking you now what is your philosophy on life and how I, and this is the i'm asking this question because i get this a lot even in my discord people go how do you continue living like how do you get over the fear of hell how do you find hope again how do you find meaning and purpose again when there's not a centralized God that's put in front of you that you've been told your entire life that you're supposed to be living for this God. <laughs> well, that's a big question. It is. Um, Specifically for you, how do yeah. you live your life? So I, I guess the best thing to say of how I live my life is I, I try very hard to recognize, I've learned a lot about how the brain works and human biology. I've learned a lot about how evolution comes about, how things are affected by change and how much we're affected by our environments. Um, the cool things that our brains can do, it can fill in the gaps of information. We can see things that literally are not there and we're not hallucinating. It's just part of the programming of our brain to try and make sense of the world around us. And just knowing all the different ways that we can trick ourselves or that people can fool us. Um, I'm very skeptical. I approach a lot of things with skepticism because, well, one, I guess I just don't want to fall for another effing cult, but <laughs> but I think the other piece of it is, is I, I also just don't want to be taken advantage of, right? I, I would I, I would like to just know how things are. I, I'm, I'm one of those people where I'd rather know what's going on than pretend that something better is going on. Um, so I guess I, I do approach things with skepticism. I would prefer to have some dialogue, some back and forth, some understanding, some background. Um, and I'm just not interested in worshiping the God of the Bible. Um, in fact, I'm not really interested in worshiping any God. Um, there's a, there's a TV show, and so be nerdy here, um, Stargate. Have you ever mm -hmm. seen any of the Stargate have, TV yes. shows? Yeah. You know, a lot of that is just kind of like saying that, that things that people find are magic or godly or, you know, God miracles is really just an alien culture that just happens to have more technology and the means and the will to dominate people. Um, that to me is what the Bible kind of describes and a lot of theology, a lot of mythology is like that. It's just dominating other people. And I think that's just human history. I think that's just human behavior that we have molded into mysticism and something that's higher than us. And it's just been our way of explaining who we are and how we got here and our purpose. But really, I think we just evolved here and there really is no purpose other than we're just 
organisms that are living on this planet and we just happened to be some of the coolest organisms possibly in this universe that we know about and we have the ability to ponder our existence which is kind of cool um and i think the drive to want to have answers makes us kind of make things up so i guess uh, i'm rambling a little bit here but I'm following you completely and I'm trying not to, I'm like, let's just dive into the metaphysical. Um, but no, I, I, there's definitely this interesting progression that's happened with humanity in terms of our perceptions, how we fill in the blanks. And a lot of those things that we've seen that have occurred have led to our survival, our ability to not only give one another agency. I can see you right now. I know the listeners can't hear you, but I can look at you. I can read your nonverbals. I can look into your eyes and I can see agency and meaning and purpose behind the things that you say. I can hear it in the inflection of your voice. I can see a very genuineness in the way that you approach situations. I can also do this with animals. I can see an animal and look at their behaviors and I can attribute agency. And as humans, we've also applied agency to inanimate things throughout our history, whether it's a rustle in the bushes, the wind that's blowing, uh, a sudden storm that blows in, and we immediately apply that to something where we can have this cause and effect and it's led to our survival and us progressing this far as who we are. And it's a very fascinating thing to look at. It doesn't mean that there's a God or that there's some sort of intelligent creator that's overseeing us. We just have developed this ability to make connections, to have connotation between one thing and another. And it's allowed us to live this long and progress this long. And it's fascinating to see. And um, I, I think you're kind of saying this as well, but there's... I don't know there's a whole lot of meaning. I, I, I sometimes can derive meaning. I think that is a human's purpose, or not a human's purpose, scratch that. It's a, it's a human's response to try to find meaning in everything that we do. Like we, we always look for meaning and we apply meaning. And the more mm -hmm. that we kind of sink ourselves into that or immerse ourselves in that, the more control it has over our own lives and the direction we take. Because then we start thinking that this is our purpose. We're evolved to see patterns and things mm -hmm. as well. And so sometimes we see patterns that are meaningful and useful and purposeful and direct our behavior in a way that allows us to survive, maybe even flourish. And sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Sometimes it's just something we want to see because it makes us feel good. And, and you know, like, I like the topic of placebo, the placebo effect, mm -hmm. um, and really the ethics surrounding it as well. Is it is it unethical for somebody to feel like something made them feel better when it did nothing? That is a, that is a valid question. And I think depending on the situation, the answers might be different. There are no hard answers to probably any query that we ever have. We're very dynamic and socially and biologically, and we don't respond to drugs the same way. We don't taste foods the same way. We, our vision doesn't pick up the same colors and wavelengths of light the same way. So, I mean, everything we're experiencing is unique. We can't really just put it all in one big bucket and say, that's it. We figured it out. It's all done. Like there's so much more to learn. <laughs> Be curious. Come on. And, and I'm going to use a very probably loose synonym for that. There's so much to experience. And, and that's really the response that I oftentimes have to people. And they go, Josh, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to experience. That's your entire meaning. You are the universe experiencing itself, much like what you know, um, we'd be hearing from Watts. Uh, it, the universe is just experience itself. You're a reflection of the universe experiencing it. So go out and experience. Be with nature, look at your reflection, taste this food, run this mile, exert yourself, reach a new height, a new possibility, and see what that does for you. And then go on to your next adventure, your next journey. And don't spend so much time looking into the past that you are not living in the present and don't worry about the future so much that you're not living in the present. If you can do that, you're going to find absolute bliss and gratitude mm -hmm. in every moment. Yeah. I don't have to believe that something is magic to believe that it is beautiful or useful or, or even awe-inspiring and unexplainable. Um, I think that stuff's exciting. Like, I, I kind of know how lightning works, but when lightning and thunderstorms roll around, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just running outside and excited to hear the thunder rolling and see the flashes just like I was a little kid. 
<laughs> it's kind of like magic, but uh, I know that there's a scientific explanation for it. I just struggle to remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have the same feeling. My wife loves thunderstorms too. She runs out all the time in them, but I, I don't really believe in miracles. I haven't for a really long time, not since I was a Christian. And I really don't believe in the supernatural. And for those that like know like my metaphysical like type of background and my interest in those things would be like what you don't believe in the meta or don't believe in supernatural i don't i believe that everything in the universe is natural and there's just some things we don't understand and so that we apply terms like supernatural or miracle but there's really a reason behind it we just haven't reached a place of understanding yet yeah i mean the the world around us is nature um, I, in fact, actually, you said something that just made me think of um, when people talk about, nat oh, this is a natural product. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get super metaphysical here. Um, yeah, everything's a natural product, just like everything's a chemical, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they are all one and the same. A, a man-made thing is still part of evolution because we're part of evolution. So we're all evolving today. Everything, everything that ever is and ever was has always been evolving and changing. We change from the moment that we are a developing fetus till when we're dying and on our deathbed. Our bodies are constantly changing. And the environment around us is also dictating a lot of what's going to happen and how that might you know, be good for us or not good for us. Um, but oh, shoot, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was just going to say to build off of that, I've really kind of applied that same type type of theory or theology to even things like religion. For me, it's a continuous progression that I've seen happen throughout history. And I've seen this in, we've seen this in civilization and our understanding of morals and our understanding of belief systems and politics. Everything goes on this constant string of progression and evolution, even our ideas. It's not even just us in nature it's how we perceive the world around us has also evolved yeah absolutely um just think of the technology that we have at our fingertips and that we're using right now is absolutely changing the way that we perceive the world too um sometimes in a good way sometimes not <laughs> but yeah I, I think the way that we i mean everything that we perceive about the world is what shapes our understanding and our reality and i you know i can't deny someone a reality it's just like pain pain is a person is um, a perception that is unique to you it's not it's subjective it's not something that you know if you're in pain i can't feel that i don't know what that feels like i can't quantify that but you can and it's real for you and whether you know whether it's by something obvious that we can very easily correlate to the cause of your pain or something that we can't, it doesn't mean it's not there and it's not real. It's just how you're experiencing it. So I want to bring this back to your life experience, the, the things you've gone through. You've been working in hospice, you've been working with people. So you've kind of had this opportunity for at least a decade and a half or so of just having real interactions with people and seeing this fluctuate on a continuum that maybe at some points is kind of lined up or reflected what you believe or see or feel and other times is completely off that mark. How has this either affirmed what you're saying right now or challenged you to get to the place that you are right now in understanding this variety that you see within people? Being in hospice, I mean, working in yeah, hospice. Yeah, in hospice yeah. and being around people. Or even in the hospital, um, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I've been around death in a variety of ways. And um, just in my own personal family and um, working in hospitals in a variety of different capacities. Um, I've been one of those people who responds to codes. I've seen some pretty horrific deaths in the emergency rooms. Um, I've, I've experienced it from a lot of different perspectives. And I think hospice has been, I guess, really one of the most important things that I've been able to experience because it's not something I ever planned on doing by any means. Um, you know, nobody's just like, oh yeah, death. Yeah, I'm gonna learn about death. <laughs> um, but it kind of got, thrown into it and then I realized this it's not what I thought it was 
um, it's a completely different approach. And you can look at it from the physical, the scientific, the pharmaceutical, the biological. I mean, you can also look at it from the emotional and the spiritual. And there's so many aspects and so many things that go on, the family dynamics, the caregiving, that just every single piece and part of what happens in your life is different than it probably ever was before and hospice just kind of gives gave me a completely different way of looking at it and like a kind of like permission to think about death differently and i don't like i'm not afraid of it anymore i used to be very terrified and i think a lot of that also has to do with growing up in a doomsday cult that does nothing but preach that the end is coming and that if you're not perfect perfectly doing everything you're supposed to you might not make it into paradise um and so i think that um definitely has left a lot a lingering sense of anxiety and doom around my death and what's going to happen to me um and then i went through a, a kind of a nihilistic period where it was like well, nothing's going to happen that's it that's it it's just going to be emptiness <laughs> And it probably will be. I have no idea. That's the thing. None of us know. Um, the only people who've ever experienced death are dead and they can't tell us. Um, I have different opinions about near-death experiences, but that's we could talk about that later. Um, but I just feel like I'm not scared of it. I don't want to die. I'm enjoying life and I would like to live it to its fullest. But now my priorities are not live, live no matter what. My priorities are, oh, quality of life is super duper important. In fact, that actually might be the most important thing to think about because you can live a really long time. I've seen some people that have lived in their hundreds and they're like in a vegetative state in many ways. You know, they've got Parkinson's or dementia or Alzheimer's and as you decline in those and people granted people are taking very good care of you they're feeding you they're dressing you they're clothing you you can live a long time but is that quality and is that what you want well we have a scale that we can use to track the decline of people with Alzheimer's it's called the fast scale you can google it and it's essentially showing how kind of you go from a, a state of normal functioning adulthood and what what it describes is a stepwise process of you losing functions that essentially kind of turn you back into an infant one of the last few things you lose is the ability to lift your head and smile that's like one of the first things that you gain as an infant is to smile and lift your head up right mm -hmm. then you get your trunkal support and all this stuff you know and so i look at that and to me yes being alive is great but i don't if i'm not really there to enjoy the quality of it and i'm not having a good time i'm not enjoying my tv shows or you know telling dirty jokes or something like, <laughs> i don't know that i want people to keep me alive and keep feeding me and keep doing that and knowing that and knowing how that can result for different people for different deaths and different disease states and things that really changes my perspective on a lot of things it changes my perspective on how we handle people who are dying people who want to maybe not suffer and then they're not allowed to because we've decided that morally that's just the worst possible thing ever <laughs> life is not always like death is not always the worst possible thing sometimes life can actually be the most worst possible thing <laughs> i agree with and, all and i think people should just be able to determine that for themselves so yeah. no i agree i have told my wife if i am in a vegetable state and i'm being fed and on to please pull the plug like just yeah. kick the cord out of the wall as you're walking by like you'll be doing me a favor i do not even if i go into a coma for x amount of time i don't care if i'm not going to wake up like just pull the plug like i don't want to be there <laughs> and then have to wake up to a goddamn medical bill like i don't want that <laughs> <laughs> Unless I'm living over in somewhere with free health family disagree with the bill versus your life. But, you know, it's really more of a like, quality. Will you will you get out of this? Will you recover? Will they get to spend time with you or are they just falsely hanging on to it? And really, you'll just be a vegetable your whole life. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> Those are definitely hard decisions to make. But I, I think the more that we talk about it as a society instead of 
hushing up about it and not wanting to talk about scary things like this and then it all it because it does it brings up the whole feelings of well what if you know heaven and hell is real and what if i'm not a good enough person and then you go back to thinking about those kinds of things instead of what does a quality of life look like for me what makes me happy what are the things that if i could no longer do them anymore would change you know would make me not want to keep you know living yeah instead of um, asking if I a can't question shove candy in my mouth and somebody has to feed me then maybe just stop feeding me <laughs> yeah instead of asking a question of fantasy on what's heaven or hell going to be like if that exists how about the quality of life that's tangible that we can actually measure and decide whether or not that's worthwhile right right yeah. and it's also really really shitty to be in the situation to be asked to make that decision for somebody else who's never ever told you what quality of life looks like for them you know if if you are responsible for figuring out what to do with your mom when she's elderly and she's never ever told you anything about what she thinks would be make her happy you're stuck with trying to make that decision for them if they cannot do that themselves and that is just that's that's rough i would much rather say you know actually something recently uh, my mother-in-law, who's also Jehovah's Witness, um, recently had a tear in her aorta, mm -hmm. which is not something usually people live through without surgery. And she declined the surgery because she won't accept a blood transfusion. It's open heart surgery. You have to have a blood transfusion for that. There's just no real way around it. Not for what they're doing. Um, and I was not going to deny her that. If that she made her wishes known, I don't agree with it, but she made her wishes known. And there was no way I was not going to, you know, honor her wishes if she could not speak for herself. So I don't agree with it, but she made those wishes known. And then that took that pressure off of me to have to feel like I had to decide that. And so I think that that's actually a good thing that we should talk about, whether or not we agree with what our parents or loved ones want to do. You know, it's it's important to have those conversations so that we're not feeling the guilt that we did the wrong thing either. It's also not fair. Yeah, those questions I think are super important. And I know for myself, my own values is goes back to you have your own body autonomy, you have your own life autonomy, you get to choose what you want to go do um, with your life, especially when it comes to those end of life situations. Now, I know that we're running out of time, but I my viewers are going to yell at me if I don't bring this back full circle because you okay. mentioned your own ideas around um, near-death experiences. And they'd be like, Josh, you have to ask her what her ideas are around near-death experiences. <laughs> she just like put that out there like a carrot on a stick and then went running away from it. Can we summarize it in, in, in a short period of time? Can you kind of give us some insights on what you think about NDEs? I know my own thoughts on it, but I'm excited to hear yours. Yeah. Um, I mean, my thoughts are that there's a lot of biological explanations for what people can see and and there's a difference between visions and hallucinations there's 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 clear definitions that we have for differentiating these kinds of experiences um you know i'm really gonna go deeper uh what is death like how do you define when somebody is dead you know just because their heart stopped beating doesn't mean that their cellular functions aren't still going and that you can't just restart that your heart is just like like an engine that you just kind of kick back if you can get it going in just enough time just because your heart stopped doesn't mean you died and so yes. i think part of that is defining what when it is you actually died and that's why i said everybody who's ever experienced death is dead and they can't tell us yeah so i don't think and I people who have near-death experiences really actually died i think they had they a near death they still have right. they still have brain activity right. that can be generating images and ideas and concepts that right. they have picked up throughout their existence. And maybe it's not even necessarily their faith, but if you've been walking around in the Western culture and you've heard the concept of heaven, Jesus, pearly gates, God, your heart may stop and your brain will generate those images and those concepts. Right. But that didn't mean you went there. It just means that you right. played out a movie of what you believe to have happened based on your conceptualization that was kind of fed to you by your culture. Yeah. Okay. And that uh, yes, that that's a that's a good summary of how how I believe too. And and there's a lot of things about the the biochemistry of near death. Your body goes through a lot of rapid changes as you are dying. Um I think that trauma and traumatic death or something that's near traumatic, like you have a 
cardiac arrest or you got hit, you know, like a traumatic damage to your body that, that triggers a certain different kind of like chemical cascade throughout your body that's going to release different kinds of hormones uh, that might drive some of this experience. Um, I think if you were to take like psilocybins and have like a mushroom trip and, and you did it one time where you also took something that was the sedative versus you took something that really like got your adrenaline running, you probably have two completely different experiences. I think that there's a lot of subtlety that can happen biologically, biochemistry. Your, your brain has a blood brain barrier that blocks certain things from getting by, but not others. And so there's a lot of different things that could be going on that could be triggering those kinds of visions. So I'm just, I'm skeptical that people are actually dying and seeing it and that what they're seeing is real. I think that it probably feels very real. And I'm not, I don't want to take those experiences away from people. I, I think that we find meaning in dreams and in things, maybe visions that we see, and they can seem just as real as anything else. And I guess I'm not here to tell people that those experiences didn't really happen and that they didn't really experience that. Uh, it's just, you know, I've seen a lot of movies and none of them were real either, but they felt real. You know, I made a real connection with the character or something. You know, I just, yeah. I think there's probably a lot of other explanations for it. As I said, we're not trying to discredit just all that entire experience. And it, and it, we do know a lot about how trauma impacts the brain and how those things solidify themselves as very um, inspirational or life-changing events and there could be something that occurs during that period of the heart stopping that causes a trauma that kind of places that into the mind at such a level that it's going to be life-changing coming back out of that again I and I'm curious I've done I know I've studied neuroscience for a long time as well but I'm curious from your vantage point or from your viewpoint is it possible that some of those experiences that people undergo maybe unlock certain areas of the brain or enhance certain areas of the brain being utilized more than others when they come back again. Because I've heard stories of people that come out of an NDE and suddenly they're seeing images or they're more intuitive or they're more perceptive or their perception has changed in the world around them on the other side of that NDE that they've experienced. Do you think that there's been an altercation or an alteration to their brain after that time? I think it's possible. I don't know if it is. Um, I know that over time, chemicals, drugs uh, can change your brain chemistry. They can start building new neural pathways and you can literally start thinking differently than you ever did before. Whether it's always something that was a singular event that triggered a cascade of change or you know, like chronic ongoing things, but, you know, people can have a lack of oxygen to the brain that can cause damage that can cause your brain to not be able to access certain abilities, but then they've shown that your brain can rewire neurochemistry and you can reform neural links and be able to regain function. Um, so I, I definitely believe that there's a certain possibility that experiences like that could change people forever. I've I've personally never tried psychedelics, psilocybin, acid, any of that stuff, but I'm fascinated by it. And I've heard a lot of people talk about their experiences as life-changing, as like, you know, I, I did mushrooms and I had such a, an amazing trip. It just changed my life. Mm -hmm. I never thought about anything. You know, I saw the things that I saw just made me not look at reality the same way ever again. And, and I definitely believe that has an impact. I definitely believe that you can, whether it's a chemical drug that you take or an experience that you have that can literally change the way that you perceive the world around you. And I absolutely believe that's true. That's why I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to invalidate people's near-death experiences or any of their experiences because it's their experiences and that's shaping them and how they view the world. Um, it's not an invalid thing, whether or not it's magical or God told them to do it or any of that, you know, whether any of that part is true, I can't validate that. Mm -hmm. So I think I maybe it goes try, back to try and redirect the conversation to what I can validate. <laughs> maybe we can go back to that. It's not necessarily supernatural. We just don't fully understand it yet. Yeah, 
Absolutely. There's probably an explanation for it. I just, you know, do we have the tools to really determine it? Do we have the funding? Do we have people asking the right questions? You know, that that's actually something I should just say before we end this podcast is that failure and fear of failure is something that um, I definitely gained from being in the religion because the the risk of failing or doing something wrong was like deadly. Your your immortal soul, but in the world of science, you really shouldn't be afraid of failure because sometimes you can spectacularly succeed with failure. Sometimes your failure, you don't get to find the answer to the question you were asking, but in your failure, you realize the question you were asking was not the right question and and totally changes the direction of it. So uh, failing is good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a wonderful life motto to live by. Well. Dr. Time Waster, it has been wonderful hanging out with you. Please let people know where they can connect with you or learn more about your story or just see your wild antics. Yes, uh, I. you can find all of my wild antics on TikTok. I am Dr. Time Waster 2.0. Uh, Dr. Time Waster uh, is also me, but I am locked out of that account. So it's just a, it's just a, <laughs> a mausoleum of who I was. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you so much. And thanks to everybody that's been hanging out with us again today. I appreciate your time. You guys need to go out there and be the best version of yourself. So whatever the best version of you looks like in the future, try to embody that and be that today. And as always, do what the fuck you will. Talk to you next time.